Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Let's go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 12 this morning. Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read out of the ESV this morning. Now we're looking at, uh, of course, this is Resurrection Sunday. And if you look in the scriptures, a lot of times what we look at is we think of, uh, you know, the Passover. The Passover was this ceremony that was launched uh, in Egypt. It was the initial meal that began, began to be a tradition assigned by God for the children of Israel. And then we look in the New Testament where Jesus uh, partook of the Last Supper, that famous painting with all the guys on one side of the table. I doubt if that's how it looked. But uh, we have the Last Supper. And then we have what we celebrate now in the New Testament as communion. And we tend to look at those as three separate events, but in actuality, they are one prophetic picture, all of them connected to one another. The Passover was the initial meal when Jesus partook of the Passover They named it his Last Supper, and he reinterpreted it, or more fully interpreted that, and connected it to his death. And he told us, "As whenever you do this, do so in remembrance of me. So the Passover was looking forward to Jesus' death. The Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, was Jesus inaugurating the new covenant on the eve of his death. And then as we partake of communion, we're looking back at his death. And he says, as uh, as often, Often as you do this, do so in remembrance of me until I return. So there's a, uh, a really a past, present, future element to the Lord's Supper. So we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning as a church, as families. And I don't think it's a coincidence that here we are as families in our homes, locked up because of this pandemic. And now we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And this Easter, ironically, uh, it's, this isn't always the case, but today, Resurrection Sunday is right in the middle of Passover. Passover began on the 8th. It will wrap up on the 16th, that nine-day period. This is the fifth day. So we are on the hump day, if you will, of the Passover, celebrating the Lord's resurrection. And here it is. We're gathering in our homes, just as God dictated to them in in the Passover meal. So let's go ahead and look at Exodus chapter 12. We see the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Listen to what it says. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. Now this was the eve of the final plague, the 10th plague, that God was executing judgment against those who were keeping Israel from their destiny, from the worship of God, and from their promised land, from their destiny. So this is the eve of the final judgment, and God was going to visit judgment on anything that would stand in the way of his people getting where they needed to go. And so he says, he says, this month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So on the Jewish calendar, Passover is the mark of the beginning of the new year. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for the for a household. Now, uh, 
Often when we in the Western world, when we talk about our relationship with the Lord, we talk about our personal relationship with Jesus. And rightly so. There is a, definitely a personal relationship that we need to enter into. But something we don't often think of and we need to because there's some rich revelation in this concept. And that is your corporate relationship with God. The fact is that God relates with people corporately. He relates with us based on our family line. He relates with us based on churches. We see that in the book of Revelation. God addresses churches and holds them accountable because of the corporate mandates that they share. He addresses families. He relates with us as families. As a matter of fact, God is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is related with three generations, and then he became the God of Israel, the, the, the entire nation that came out of the loins, ultimately, of Abram. And so we have this thing of God relating with people based on their relationships with other people. We also see God relating with cities. In Matthew chapter Chapter 11, I believe it is, uh, God rebukes uh, cities. And he said, in that day, Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up and witness against you. And so he's relating with cities and he's saying that I will hold the people of a generation accountable for their location. I will hold them accountable because there's something about the other people that they're running with that demands that they fulfill certain things. God relates with us based on our corporate relationships. He, he not only relates with individuals, he relates with bodies of people. And so we see in this passage, God says there's a lamb for a household. We see in Matthew chapter 12, God holds a generation accountable. He said in that day, uh, I believe he says that... Uh, that the queen of Sheba will rise up in that day and witness against this generation. Speaking of the generation in which he's alive. And so it's fascinating that he, he addresses their generation and their location. And both of them are tied to our destiny. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17, Paul was preaching and he said, God hath chosen the times and places in which men should live. Their location and their generation are assigned to them by God and their destiny is tied to those two things. The same is true for us. And we need to learn to think in terms of that because if we're only learning to think, if we only think in terms of our personal relationship with God, this thing that we have between us and Jesus, it really limits the scope of what God has for us and he wants to do with us. Because God also wants to tie us in with our family line. He wants to relate with us based on our family. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says in Psalm 71 that he was establishing a testimony in Jacob. But the fact is, he is he's establishing a testimony in every household in the earth that will yield their lives to him. God is also relating with us based on our church. The church that you're tied to is tied to your destiny. The promised land was allocated according to your tribal affiliation. 
And if you weren't part of a tribe, you had no promised land. You had no inheritance. The same is true in the spirit. The, the scriptures say that it's first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God operates by patterns. He operates according to how he interacted with Israel as a people. And he, he operates with his church in the same way. We need to understand that our inheritance in God is tied to the people that he's assigned us to. And if we, we end up running with the wrong people, we forfeit our inheritance. So it's very important for us to understand who we run with. Understand the destiny on your city and on your nation. We need to own those things. We need to realize that, that the destiny for our particular city is tied to us. We are the intercessors that stand before God and cry out for our nation. And so the destiny that God has for us is tied to our location, our generation, our church, our family. And we see in this passage where God says that he had a lamb for every household. Last weekend when we were in worship, me and one other person, as the worship team was up here and the tech team was in the back and me and one other dude were, man, we were jumping and pacing and praising God and we were going after it. I'm telling you, there is something missing when you guys aren't here. It was awesome. The presence of the Lord is here, but I miss you. And uh, so we were worshiping and I went back into the back of the church. I was just pacing, praying, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And it was out of this passage. And this is what he told me. He said, I died for your family. I am zealous for your legacy, for the generations of the Olsons. And I was really, I was taken aback. And then he reminded me of that verse where he says, there is a lamb for every household. The fact is there is an application of Jesus' death for us personally. For God so loved you as an individual. Many of you have heard preachers say this before. If it was only you, Jesus would have died for you. The fact is he died for the world. There is an application to us individually, but there's an application to us corporately. And in this passage, we see that there's a lamb for every house. And God wants to redeem houses. And again, I don't think it's a coincidence that just as God called the Israelites to shut up in their homes, to avoid this death angel, this, what the Bible calls the destroyer, the destroyer coming through, that they were to come, go into their homes, partake of the Passover and paint the blood on the doorpost of their house. And then it says, God, God says, I will pass over you. Now this word Passover, often we, we look at it as God going around killing people and scripture uses that language that God was going to go through and strike the firstborn. But it very clearly attributes that to this being that was sent by God called the destroyer. But it was God that would pass over. And so when it says that, the, the, the Hebrew word that is used for that our word Passover really doesn't do it justice. It has the idea of literally God kind of, almost like God covers us so that the, the destroyer can't get to us. It says, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. It's like God puts himself in front of the entry points of that household so the destroyer can't enter because God is the protector of those who have the blood painted over the doorpost of their house. That's the idea behind the Passover. 
And so God told them to gather in homes. Let's, let's continue in this passage. Verse, let's read verse 3 again. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, he is, he, then he is, his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each man can eat, and make account for the lamb. Now, we don't have time to get into this this morning, but it really strikes me that there's a limit on how small a group can partake of the lamb. There's a limit to, there's an irreducible minimum of amount of people that can eat of the lamb together before you can eat a whole lamb. In other words, you're never going to get the whole lamb by yourself. You're never going to get all that God has for you when you're by yourself. And so if your household is too small, it says invite your neighbors in so that they can partake with you because we need others uh, in order for us to consume the lamb. And then he goes on in verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a a male year old, Uh, You may take it from the sheep or the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil, the door frame of their houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. They weren't allowed to boil it because boiling a lamb would take too long. If you were to boil the lamb, you'd have to remove the the, uh, innards and so forth and prepare it, but they were in a hurry. They were to eat it in haste because they were eating in faith. Even after 400 years of slavery as an act of faith that tonight we're going to eat it standing up. They're going to take their, their, their garments and tuck it in their belt so that they could, they'd gird their loins so that they could move quickly. And they were going to eat this and then they were going to burn the remains that anything they didn't consume would have to be burnt because they understood they're, they're going, they're leaving this night. It was the mark of a new day. It was a mark of a a new season and a new era in the life of Israel. And we need to look at that today. Again, I don't think it's a coincidence that we are partaking of communion. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper on Passover, on Easter, when everybody is locked up in their houses because of this pandemic. This is a prophetic sign to us that God is drawing a line of demarcation and he's going to free the people of God of everything that is keeping them from their destiny, everything that is keeping them from their worship. Because they had told Pharaoh, Moses had went to Pharaoh and stuck his bony finger in Pharaoh's face and said, let my people go, let my people worship me. And uh, God, the Pharaoh dug in his heels, so God judged and exercised judgment, exacted judgment on everything that would keep the children of Israel from worshiping him. And so we are going to partake of communion this morning, and we're going to believe God to bring judgment on everything that would withhold us from our destiny, everything that's keeping us, and especially judgment on this pandemic. We're in agreement with the prophetic voices that not only prophesy the arrival of this pandemic, but a prophesied its de- demise during Passover. Amen? All right, so we see this. So they're going to eat it that night. Now, it's, it, uh, 
We've been talking about the blood of Jesus. We've been talking about the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. We've been talking about how, why God values the blood. We talked about how God values the blood, not out of some sentimental reason because it's his son's blood, but he values the blood because the life, according to Leviticus, is in the blood. And we need to understand, when we say that, it's not just the physical life that's in the blood, it's the moral life that is in the blood. The fact is the moral life, the moral accomplishments, what Jesus achieved with his life, his righteousness is in that blood. That's why Hebrews chapter two and chapter five say, once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. It says that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. It was a process. Jesus was born innocent, but he was made perfect. He was born innocent. He was spotless, but he hadn't been perfected. He was perfected by the things he suffered. He was confronted in his will and given a choice between good and evil and making the right choice. He began to develop the, he began to uh, bring forth the image of God stamped upon his nature so that he would become all that God intended. That So that finally God would have his dream of having a man made in his own image. And so Jesus began his ministry at the baptismal water saying, I must fulfill all of righteousness. John, his cousin said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I can't baptize you. You baptize me. Jesus said, you don't understand. I've got to fulfill all of righteousness. And at the end of his ministry, he wrapped it up saying this, it is finished. What was finished? All of righteousness. He was made perfect and it was that life that was in the blood. We need to understand this concept of the life being in the blood. It's not just the life that is in Jesus' blood, but we receive a moral inheritance, not just from Jesus, but from our family. I believe God wants to do a work in families today. What he spoke to me last week is for today. God wants to pass over and break the bondages in people's families. The fact is that there is a moral inheritance that we receive that comes down through the bloodline. That's why you can see often these uh, sin patterns that awaken in families. When I worked for Teen Challenge, we used to do this thing called a genogram. It's, it's a practice among therapists where you take and you write out a graph of your family tree as far as you can remember. You draw a little X, I mean a little triangle and a little circle for your mother and your father on the maternal, your mother's side. And then you do the same on your paternal side and then you draw up from there, down up through the family tree, all the figures that you know about. And then you branch off and you draw little X's and uh, or uh, triangles and, and circles for ev all the children of that union and all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles. And you draw out the biggest family tree you can, can remember. And then you begin to trace things like divorce. You begin to trace things like alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, and all of these things. And it was a fascinating thing because there would be this bold relief of this dysfunction. These dysfunctional behaviors would go down through branches of that family tree. And it's because scripture's clear that we have a moral inheritance from our family. Scriptures, there's scriptures that talk about the sins of a father being visited on the third and fourth generation but righteousness to a thousand generations. 
There is moral inheritance. And that inheritance comes in really three ways. There is a physical inheritance. I've, there, there are inheritances that I've received from my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Physically, my dad and I, we both, if you watch me in worship, I'll start jiggling my leg like this. It is a, a genetic thing. I can't help myself. And if you see my dad, he'll do the same thing. I've got pictures of my dad here when he and I are standing up front and we're both standing the same way. It's like, it wasn't because as a little boy, I was trying to emulate him, although I did. It's just in me genetically. I look at my kids sometimes and physical things they do. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's me. That's a scary thing. There's a physical inheritance that we receive, but there's also a spiritual inheritance. There are things, there are battles that my forefathers didn't fight that I've had to fight. There are things that stopped with my dad's generation because my dad was a first generation believer. He got saved and many of the, the things that, that were in our family line, and I'm gonna tell you, my family line, if you look back in the generations, there's all kinds of garbage, but they stopped with my dad because he drew a line in the sand and broke those off as a first generation believer. And so there's, there's inheritances that we have spiritually, but there's also inheritances that we have psychologically. And these become the tricky ones. The ones that are spiritual are easier to deal with in actuality than the psychological ones because the spiritual ones are passed down and they literally it's, there are what the Bible refers to as familiar spirits. There are demonic spirits that try to visit generations and reinsert their influence generationally in families. But as we come under the blood and we yield ourselves to Jesus, we can break off those things so that they stop in our generation. But psychologically, there are inheritances that we receive that are taught rather than caught. There's ways that we are shaped in our home, uh, ways that we do relationship, ways that we see God psychologically. And those things are harder to deal with than the spiritual inheritances because we're less aware of them. And so that's where we need to renew our minds. We need to uh, be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we have the proper view of God. We've got to learn how to do relationships in a healthy way. We've got to train our emotions and not, not be driven by our emotions, but let our emotions follow us, follow our decisions rather than determine our decisions. All of that has to do with discipleship. But all of these things, they come down through the generations. And God wants us to be aware of those things. That's why he has a lamb for every household. The Lord is out to redeem our original purpose and stop the flow from our Adamic nature. There's a beautiful passage in scripture in the book of Joshua where the children of Israel are, are heading over the river Jordan. And as, they, as the, the high priest, the priests come with the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, as soon as their feet hit the water, it says that the water began to stack up. The flow stopped upstream. But if you look in the text in, in the book of Joshua, it says that the flow stopped at a city called Adam. It's like when the presence of God came and touched the water, there was a ceasing of the flow from that Adamic nature. 
and it became dry so they could walk on a cross. And God wants to help us to get victory over the Adamic nature, those inheritances from the past, from those old natures. And so God wants to redeem our families. What the Lord told me wasn't just for me, it was for us as a house. God is zealous for our legacy. He is zealous to redeem your family line. God is out to establish a particular testimony, a unique story. It's his story. Your history is his story, and he wants to redeem it and bring something unique, not only through you as an individual, but through your family. There are things he wants to land in human history. He wants to to deliver to the human race. There are answers that are supposed to come through your family line. There are gifts and callings and, and unique things that God wants to deliver to the humanity through your family line. He is jealous and zealous for your family line, through, for the generations of your family. And we need to understand that because all that we've been talking about, about applying the blood, it's not that we only apply the blood to ourselves. We've been talking about how we, we apply the blood towards God and it satisfies the demand of justice towards God. And we apply the blood to our own hearts. It, scripture says it cleanses us, our hearts of a guilty conscience. The shed blood satisfies divine justice. The sprinkled blood satisfies psychological guilt and cleanses the human being of a guilty conscience. It's the blood towards ourselves. And then we have the blood of Jesus as a weapon towards the enemy, utilizing it towards hell. But we need to understand that the sprinkled blood also has an application for our families. And that is the picture of the Passover. We apply the Passover over our homes and we begin to declare the destiny of God over our homes because the blood of Jesus the sprinkled blood Hebrews chapter 12 says speaks a better testimony than that of Abel you see blood has a voice Genesis chapter 4 we're only four chapters into the, the human story and, all, and we already have one brother murdering another because Cain became jealous over Abel and his relationship with God. So he told his brother, let's go out in the field. And then when his brother turned, he picked up a rock and, and hit, hit his brother Abel in the head and he fell over dead. And then he left and God came to Cain and he said, Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Abel or Cain in a, a sarcastic answer said, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And the implication is, yes, you are. And the Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. What a fascinating thing. There's more than poetry going on here. We've got to be careful that we don't just attribute to the scriptures po some poetic way of communicating and miss what God is saying. The blood speaks because the life is in the blood. And the life that is in someone's blood doesn't cease to speak when that life leaves the body. That life continues to speak. 
We see this in the New Testament where the martyrs, the martyr's blood has shed, is poured out on the earth. Those that gave their life for the gospel. And now those same people are underneath the throne. Interesting phraseology there. They're under the throne and they're crying out to God, how long? That, that life that's in their blood still speaks. They're still in intercession. If you've lost loved ones that are in heaven, they are still speaking on our behalf. Their ministry did not stop. It's, it's fascinating to me. The, if you want to know about the blood, you've got to get into the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is the biblical textbook on the blood of Jesus. It's because the Hebrew people were the people that Jesus or that the Father chose to communicate his truth through. They were his chosen people, and through them he would speak to the nations of the earth. And the New Testament book that... that uh, carries their name, Hebrews, is the book where we get the primary revelation of the, lo- the blood, of, uh, blood of Jesus, what the, what the value of the blood is. And that value is a moral value that it speaks on our behalf. And it's this very book that in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses. And the writer is telling us, he's saying, I want to motivate you to run hard after Jesus because you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He's referring to Hebrews chapter 11 and all those who paid such a dear price for the gospel and they ran their hardest. And then he goes into uh, the latter part of that list of heroes and he said, there's those who forfeited their deliverance. They willingly said, I'll, I'll let it go and I'll roll it over to the next generation. And then he speaks of those who didn't understand and lived in the mystery and believed to the last moment for the promise. And even though they didn't receive it, they still died believing. They were living in the mystery. And of those two groups of people, scripture says, of them the world was not worthy. And then he says, and only together with us, will they be made perfect? These saints who have gone on before us, whose blood still speaks, they are before the throne and they have a greater vested interest now than when they were on the earth. Their intercession still takes place before the throne. Their ministry didn't stop. I was reading through that passage the other day and it it just struck me and I thought, we've got this false finish line of death. And it was so intriguing to me that God hid this principle in the book of Hebrews that gives us such vivid teaching on the blood of Jesus. It was Hebrews that gives us this picture of what's really going on in the spiritual realm. Hebrews 12 is where we realize what's really going on when we come together in worship. Let's turn there, Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse, we're going to go from Exodus 12 to Hebrews 12. And it says here, look at verse verse 18. We did a series on this a while back, but it's just awakened in my heart all over again, this whole passage. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. He's saying, you haven't come to Mount Zion, this, the, the, the mount where God, the mount of God that Moses referred to it as. It shook as they, they came to it. It says, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of oh, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They were scared. And it says, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beach, beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And God's saying, that's not the mountain you come to as New Testament believers. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is a picture of what happened this morning as we gathered in front of our computers, our phones, our TV sets. We're here to listen, we're, we're here to gather before the innumerable angels in the, the, the Mount Zion to the assembly, verse 23, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's speaking of you and I. We're the firstborn enrolled in heaven. We're already, our, our paperwork is already in. And then it says, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of righteous men made perfect. It's speaking of that great cloud of witnesses we saw earlier. And then it says this. So just realize that when we come together, all of that is going on. The reality beyond this dimension is we've stepped into uh, all that God is doing. And then verse 24, and, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood. Last week we were looking at this, how the sprinkled blood is to cleanse our conscience. But the sprinkled blood also has a voice and it speaks on our behalf. It speaks on our behalf before the throne of God. And it's a better word than Abel. Abel's vo blood cried from the ground. And it cried out. And it's fascinating. Even it says that the ground opened up its mouth to receive Abel's blood. And now the blood was exacting its vengeance on Cain. And it would no longer cooperate with him. He was a farmer. But it's saying, I'm no longer going to cooperate with you. I won't. I won't cooperate and bring forth fruit. So he became a vagabond just wandering. There's more going on in the spiritual realm than we realize. And his blood was crying out vengeance. And the New Testament writer looks back at that and said, there's something better that the blood of Jesus, a better word that it speaks out on our behalf. What is that word? It's a word of mercy. It's the word of grace and mercy. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to receive communion this morning. And I want us to understand what's going on when we do so. 1 John chapter 1. Let's look at verse 5. We're going to read 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
It's not talking about mere forgiveness. It says that when we walk in relationship with one another, there's cleansing through the blood of Jesus. And then in verse eight, it says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. I was reading that passage years ago. I was very familiar with it. And it said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And it struck me. I can see how it's the faithfulness of God to me that he forgives me. When I fall, he forgives me. But what struck me is it says he is just to forgive me. I don't know if you've ever heard a preacher say this, but I have, and I've probably said it. I've said, I don't want justice because if I receive justice, then I'll be sent straight to hell. I never want justice. I just want mercy. But here's the thing. This New Testament passage tells us that forgiveness is a just act by God. That it's the justice of God that forgives us. How can that be? How can the justice of God pardon me? It's because the word of Jesus, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than Abel. The blood of Jesus is a weapon. A couple of years ago, I had a dear friend that was in ministry and had gotten into some things and uh, was in trouble. He'd gotten involved with some people that were some bad people, people that were involved in some dark, dark things, occultic things. And uh, he, was, he was in a bad place. He'd gotten very ill. Uh, and I was fasting and praying and just crying out for this individual. And one night as I was praying, and I, I just said, God, how do, how do we even deal with this kind of stuff? How, how do we deal with uh, this, this kind of dark, this level of darkness? And I was reminded of this passage, this weird passage in first, I want to say it's first Kings chapter three. The Moabites were under Israel's dominion. They were, they had to, they were in, uh, they were indentured into servitude. They'd made a treaty with Israel and they rebelled. And so Israel mounted up and they were going to go take the Moabites back. And so they went to war against them. And uh, they asked the Lord, God, what should we do? And the Lord spoke to them through a prophet that uh, was through Elisha. And he said, uh, this is what you're to do. And, and I'm going to deliver them into your hands. You're going to wipe out every city. So they went and they began to city by city, just defeat the Moabites until finally the king of Moab, he found he couldn't beat him. So it says he took his firstborn son, the heir to the throne, and he sacrificed him on the city wall. And then it says this, and a great fury was released against Israel. So Israel went home. I thought, what a weird passage. What is that? What's going on there? 
What it was talking about is the idea of sacrifice in the spiritual realm. And here in this passage, Israel had a prophetic word from the Lord that they would conquer every city, but they left one city unconquered and didn't fulfill the word of the Lord because of the fury that was unleashed through a demonic occultic sacrifice. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't have beat him. It means that they, they let up in the fury of the battle because something was released through this demonic sacrifice. And I was reminded of that passage and I was just crying out to God and I was saying, God, how do we even deal with this level of, of demonic stuff? You see, the spiritual realm operates on sacrifice. And there is a place for the believer to fast and pray and to sacrifice, not to earn salvation. That is a free gift. That's something Jesus does for us. That, that, that belongs to the realm of soteriology, the study of salvation, the theology of salvation. It, it belongs to the realm of Christology, the study of Jesus and what he did for us. But there is a place for sacrifice, and that belongs to the, the study of ministry and pneumatology, what the Spirit does. Because when it comes to what Jesus does, I simply believe and place my faith in it, and he accomplishes it for me. But when it comes to the ministry of the Spirit, there is clearly within New Testament theology a partnership where I, he operates through me and as me. And I can clear the way for him to operate to a greater degree by yielding myself to him. And the unpleasant reality is the same is true for darkness. There are people who yield themselves to a greater degree to be utilized by darkness. And it was that awareness that I was asking the Lord about that night. I was saying, God, how do we deal with this level of darkness? And the Lord spoke to me clearly. He told me a couple of things that I'm not going to go into, but one of the things he told me is he said, my blood, my blood overrules every blood sacrifice. Every covenant ever made among man is overruled by my covenant. My blood can overtake that. Every negative blood sacrifice. You see, there's been times where we'll go into other nations and it's much more common for them to overtly enter into blood sacrifices. And I'm reminded of a young man that we were praying for uh, in a church in Columbia. And uh, he began to manifest the demonic and, and just uh, completely tormented. And his mother and father had sacrificed animals and dedicated him to the enemy. And he came, he got saved, but there was this demonic oppression in his life that needed to be broken. And there was this blood sacrifice that was still trying to reach in and give access to his life. And here's the thing, the blood of Jesus cancels out every other covenant. It can stop the flow from Adam so that he could walk over on dry ground into his promised land. And that blood, because the blood of Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice. And this is what the Lord told me. He said, my son, when my son left the throne of heaven and took on human flesh, that was the greatest fast that ever took place in all of history. Literally, Jesus fasted 
the throne room. He fasted the right to sit in the, the glory of heaven and came to earth. And by that sacrifice, because he had the most, he could sacrifice the most. You see, hell's sacrifice is always mercenary in nature in the sense that hell will sacrifice as long as it's beneficial to them. But only the kingdom will sacrifice of ourselves and lay our life down from another, for another. That's why love always wins. Because the enemy will always pull out when the price is too high. But sacrifice of the kingdom will lay down our own life. And the blood of Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And it can break every curse that comes down through our family lines. I look at my family. There were a lot of lot of. Uh, garbage that came down through my family line but I've been able to cut those things off and I've determined my I'm not going to allow my children to have to fight the battles that I won't win we can break those things through the blood there's a lamb for every household and this morning it, it may seem like a strange message for Easter Sunday but I don't believe it's a coincidence. I believe this has been a prophetic appointment by heaven that we've all been quarantined to our homes with our families on Easter in the middle of the Passover. And we're going to receive communion this morning. And we're going to break off anything that would keep us from our promised land. And we're going to break off any of the things from the past that will try to intrude in our life. And so... If you would take the elements in your home today and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to receive the, the bread. Jesus, it says, on the night that he was betrayed, he sat down with his disciples. He wanted to have a meal with them. This intimate setting, it was the Passover meal. And it says, he took the bread into his hands and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Eat of it. It was a picture of the beating he would take before he poured out his blood. Scripture's clear that the Passover lamb could not have its bones broken. And even that little minuscule prophetic prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. It was customary to break the bones of, of crucified victims to hasten their death. But when the Roman soldiers came by to break Jesus' his legs so he could no longer pull himself up to get an inhale and exhale the, the carbon dioxide, they were surprised that he had already expired. And so his bones were left unbroken. But his flesh was broken for us. And Jesus went to the whipping post and it says that Isaiah gave this prophecy that it's by his stripes we were healed. There's healing in his body, in the bread. And so we're going to take this bread this morning. And with it, we're going to prophesy the end of COVID-19 over this nation. There have been prophetic words by major prophets that this thing is going to begin to die down during Passover season. And we're adding our faith and we're declaring that in this hour. That as we partake of the bread, we're going to 
bring an end to this COVID-19. So I want you to take the bread and just hold it in your hand and hold it up to the Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the demise of this virus. Just as you covered the Israelites when they painted their doorposts with blood. Lord, we know that your presence hovers over our homes, over our bodies. And now, Lord, we release that over our nation and the nations of the earth. We declare that because of what Jesus absorbed at the whipping post, COVID-19 is coming to an end in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we just release healing over our homes. And Lord, we thank you that there's a lamb for every household. A lamb for every household. A lamb for every household. I want to encourage you this morning. You may have children that you've been praying for and you're worried about. You may have parents that don't know the Lord. We're taking a, a lamb for every household. It says that they would eat according to their father's lineage, their father's household. We're declaring a blessing over our family name, our, our maternal family and our paternal family, and down through everyone that came from our loins. If you have stepchildren, if you have children that you've adopted, they've been connected with your family name. You can release the family blessing. And so, Lord, we just release this blessing. We thank you for it. We thank you for your broken body. In Jesus' name, let's eat. Hallelujah. I remember years ago hearing Jack Hayford preach a message. The Lord had led him to begin to pray for anybody that was of the Hayford name. The Lord began to speak to him about family trees and how the life-giving sap, when God sets one individual in a family aside, when they get saved, 1 Corinthians is very clear that an unbelieving spouse is sanctified. There's favor. They're set apart. There's a special element of grace that comes on that person for God to deal with them. It says that Paul goes on to say in that passage, he said, if this weren't true, then children of believing parents that don't know the Lord wouldn't be holy, but they are holy. It's not saying that they're saved and guaranteed heaven, but it's saying that there's something that comes on them. There's a, a special grace, a favor that comes through that branch and begins to press out that life-giving sap, begins to make its way through the family tree. And so Jack Hayford didn't share it with anybody. He just began to pray for the Hayford family. And he said it was a strange thing. He'd never had this happen before, but for several months it happened. And then he said he'd never had it happen after that. And he believed the Lord brought those people along just to give him a window into this principle and show him that this was really happening. And what happened is he began to get phone calls from people saying, hey, I was, I'm in California, I'm, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Indiana, I'm from Kentucky, I'm from New York, and I'm a Hayford, and I'm out in California here, and I just looked through the phone book to see if there are any Hayfords, and I thought possibly we would be related. And he would talk to them, and lo and behold, they would begin to share 
about how just in the last number of weeks and months that they had come to know the Lord. And it was in the time frame that Jack began to pray for the Hayford family. He said, I'd never had anybody reach out to me and ask if they were related to me. Didn't have it happen before that, didn't have it happen since. He said, but there was that window of time, a several month period where it began to happen. And God was wanting to show him and encourage him that you are a priest for the Hayford household. You see, the Old Testament priests, they would, they would wear a breastplate and there were the stones of the tribes of Israel on the breastplate. And they would do the priestly work and as they would go into the temple, they would literally wear the tribes upon their heart as they stood before God. And as believers, we are a kingdom of priests and we bear our family before the throne of heaven. We bear our nation. We bear our neighborhood. So I want to encourage you, believe for your family. There's a lamb for every household. And your family members may not have yielded their life to Jesus yet, but you have authority and there's favor that's on them because it's on you. There's a lamb for every household. Let's take the wine. Paul says that the Lord showed him that on the night he was taken, he then took the wine. You see, Paul wasn't there. He wasn't one of the 12. But the Lord thought it so important for Paul to understand what happened, that through some prophetic revelation, some form or fashion, the Lord himself, Paul said, told me what happened that night. And he said, he took the cup and he looked at his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you take it, do so in remembrance of me. You see, the blood of Jesus speaks a better testimony. Abel's blood cried justice and vengeance. Jesus' blood does cry justice, but it's justice that justifies us. When John says that if we confess our sins, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just to do so. You see, the blood that used to be the prosecuting attorney has become the defense. And we hide under his sacrifice and it answers on our behalf. The covenant on our behalf. So take your, your wine, your juice and lift it up before the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the new covenant in your blood. Jesus, I thank you that your blood still speaks, that it speaks a better testimony and that the life in your blood has satisfied every righteous requirement you had for man. It speaks on our behalf and cries out, it is finished. So Lord, we come boldly before your throne of grace and Lord, we bear our family on our hearts. Lord, I thank you that there's a lamb for every household. And as the federal head of our households, as fathers, we declare blessing over our household. As mothers, we declare blessing over our households. Lord, bring salvation to our house and bring judgment against everything that would stand between us and our promised land. In Jesus' name, let's drink.
Hallelujah. We're going to close with a song this morning. And then Hoel's going to dismiss us in prayer. God bless you.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.